Is it just a small story or a sign of the times? Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. We are continuing to piece together the puzzle pieces here to speculate on what is actually going on out there. And this was quite an interesting story, and this came out from Reuters via Mining.com. Aramet no longer sees the LME as a benchmark for ferro-nickel, and Aramet, which is a French multinational mining and metallurgy company and is the world's second largest producer of ferro-nickel, which accounts for just over 10% of global nickel output and is used to make stainless steel, is now saying the Shanghai metals market, quote, has become the benchmark, end quote, for pricing ferro-nickel, and they are quoting... Aramet's chair and chief executive officer, Christelle Boris. So again, it reminds me of these de-dollarization stories where on their own seems not too significant, but as a larger whole is, shall we say, concerning from the U.S. point of view. And we have a quote here as well from Boris. And it's something that we've been seeing in London Metal Exchange stories for the last year at least, you know, almost dating back to that post-Russia invasion of Ukraine when there was the huge nickel issue. Remember the nickel short squeeze where they had to basically not count a whole bunch of nickel trades on the LME? Listen to what Crystal Boris says. Quote, there's an increasing disconnect between the market fundamentals and the product that's physically stored in the LME warehouses. The LME's problem is that it's pricing the pure ore Meanwhile, nickel is less and less used as a pure metal. So Aramit doesn't really have too much choice. If it's the second largest producer of ferro-nickel, it does not want a bad nickel price. It kind of wants as accurate of a nickel price as it can find. And right now, that's on the Shanghai metals market. So that is pretty interesting. And again, is this just a small story or a sign of the times? Like we saw, you know, on the de-dollarization front, very briefly, we saw that Argentina upped its swap lines with the yuan. So that was interesting because, you know, I was thinking just strategically, maybe it's easier to do little deals at first so nobody gets too upset, say in the United States, if Argentina just has some small swap lines with the yuan, almost similar to what we saw with Saudi Arabia offering to take some oil in yuan. And the first reaction really was, well, it's so small that it doesn't really matter. But then, as we see in Argentina, then with the second story that comes out, let's say months later, if not a year later, whenever it is, then it says, oh, we're just going to up the uh, swap lines. So it's not as shocking of a story. And you almost wonder if that could be the game plan in Saudi Arabia. So let's not get too speculative here. So there was another, you know, de-dollarization story too, just so you know. And I share these things because it is all tied together, first of all. And secondly, you're not seeing this on the front page of CNBC. Pakistan to trade oil and gas with Russia, Iran, Afghanistan outside U.S. dollar. And this is the cradle. And it says here the agreement is meant to help relieve Pakistan's foreign reserve crisis. And this is a pretty common thing that's going on here where there's a shortage of dollars for other countries. So a foreign reserve crisis while bypassing U.S. sanctions imposed on the South Asian country's neighbors. The barter mechanism, interesting term, allows crude oil, LNG, 
wheat, iron, and steel to be imported from Russia, while coal, crude oil, LNG, and fruits, nuts, and vegetables will be allowed to be imported from Iran. So it seems that a lot of these countries are getting less and less scared of making deals like this, maybe because everybody's doing it at once. So pretty interesting over there. And of course, how it relates all back to us is almost all of these commodities are priced in U.S. dollars, right? So pretty interesting there. Now, just again on the whole Global South front, listen to this. So remember last week, the president of the Democratic Republic of Congo was meeting with China and was doing the tour and was really, I don't know if he was given the red carpet, but it kind of seemed that way after he was, you know, complaining publicly about the deal that they had with Beijing. So he went on a big tour and basically it sounded like they had resolved their differences. Now here a week later, listen to this, the world has a number two copper exporter and guess who it is? It's the Democratic Republic of Congo. And this is Bloomberg News via mining.com. The Democratic Republic of Congo displaced Peru as the second biggest copper exporter last year. Official data from the two countries show in a changing of the guard for the mining industry. And of course, the DRC is home to Ivanhoe Mines Kamoa Kakula Mine, right? Now, I thought Zijin Mining owned something like half, but it says here Zijin Mining Company and Robert Martin are only 14%, which is surprising to me because I thought they owned actually half. So we can see here this project by Ivanhoe Mines, the Kamoa Kakula project is a world-class project, as we've been discussing here for years. It is coming true, though. This is not simply a story you hear at a mining convention and then never really gets delivered. This is for real. And it's interesting. The story says here, that Peru, the reason why they're falling behind is political upheaval and community protests have helped keep the country's copper exports fairly flat. And that's what you see in the chart. It's basically flat to lower as far as exports. And you see Congo, since 2018, it's basically moving towards a 45-degree angle. It's a pretty impressive chart. So all to say, the Congo is becoming a pretty major player here. And, you know, China wisely seemed to recognize as soon as there was public unhappiness, seemed to invite the president right over uh, and gave him a tour, and they made all sorts of partnerships and deals. So pretty interesting. Other than that, I mean, another notable story that we're following here, BHP unleashes the power of digital at world's largest copper mine. So Microsoft is partnering with BHP to increase copper recovery at its Escondida mine using AI and machine learning. So the mining industry is not immune to AI, as we all know, and it is being used to increase copper recovery. So that is impressive and maybe could really help with production. There is an interesting quote here that I want to just highlight here. Before we move on, BHP Chief Technical Officer Laura Tyler said by augmenting new digital technology capabilities with new ways of working, the team at Escondida has been able to generate more value from an existing resource. Quote, we expect the next big wave in mining to come from the advanced use of digital technologies. So we have also been following the digital mind stories. And John Montgomery, CVP AI platform at Microsoft, also said, quote, we are excited to partner with BHP 
on this transformative project that demonstrates the power of AI, machine learning, and cloud technologies. So the digital mind continues to evolve over here, which is also incredibly interesting. So coming up, we have a wonderful, very special guest. We have Randy Smallwood, president and CEO of Wheaton Precious Metals and current chair of the World Gold Council. So I have a whole bunch of pressing questions to hear what he has to say about streamers, as well as where we are with gold from his perspective as a chair of the World Gold Council. So that should be fascinating. And that is coming right up. And we have a ton of very interesting stories as well. Thank you to everybody who participated in the Global Mining Symposium. We had some very fascinating discussions and the stories are starting to come out on northernminer.com, including Rob McEwen, who says that the mining industry needs an Uber moment. His analogy was quite interesting where he compared it to the taxi industry, which most people didn't like, and that we need to you know, reinvent ourselves as uh, Uber, which everybody loves for the most part, compared to the taxi industry. So some pretty interesting comments there at the Global Mining Symposium and many more, which we'll highlight in the shows ahead. So with that, thank you once again for joining us. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. Wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have an update on the tech resources story, courtesy of Cecilia Jamasmi. Tech Resources, Canada's largest diversified miner, is reportedly struggling to secure the support of top shareholder China Investment Corporation for a plan to exit coal. And I believe... Yeah, check this out, the next line. I mean, it's quite interesting because I think a lot of people have seen the China Investment Corporation throughout the story and kind of wondered, who is that? Right? Well, we have an answer here. The Vancouver-based miner denied a Bloomberg report claiming that CIC, China's largest sovereign wealth fund, was in favor of Glencore's bid to buy the miner. So tech denied a Bloomberg report that claimed that China's largest sovereign wealth fund, the China Investment Corporation, was in favor of Glencore's bid to buy the miner. CIC has not disclosed how it voted, interestingly, but it is said to favor any plan that would allow investors to end their coal exposure cleanly for an attractive cash return, people close to the matter told Bloomberg News on Thursday. According to the news outlet, Tech's chief executive officer, Jonathan Price, met with CIC representatives last week to learn details on what the fund is expecting. So these guys are pretty powerful. I mean, they're the top shareholder. Price did not receive any confirmation that CIC would back a revised plan. The quoted sources who spoke on condition of anonymity said, I mean, there's always this question with an entity like the China Investment Corporation, a sovereign wealth fund, like, I suppose that's the Chinese government. And when that's the case, you wonder, are there foreign policy objectives that are included? Is this purely a market play? Is this purely about price and profit? Or are there other forces at work here? Price did not receive any confirmation that CIC would back a revised plan. The quoted sources who spoke on condition of anonymity said, CIC's behavior can be explained by China's view of Canada's critical mineral strategy 
Introduced by the federal government late last year, said analysts from the McDonald laurier Institute, a public policy think tank based in Ottawa. The policy aims to protect natural resources from foreign ownership and secure supply chains for critical minerals. So they're saying here, these people at the McDonald laurier Institute are saying that the China Investment Corporation's behavior can be explained by China's view of Canada's critical mineral strategy. And let's just see the quote here from Charles Burton, MLI Senior Fellow. Quote, while keeping tech in Canadian hands is clearly in our national interests, China probably now prefers that its investment in tech be transferred to the less explicitly hostile Swiss company. Very, very interesting. And I mean, it's no secret that Xi and Trudeau are not exactly the best of friends. And if they feel that the Canadian government would want to keep tech in Canadian hands, then maybe just out of spite, they may want to remove it from Canadian hands. But I mean, again, this is highly speculative over here. Let's continue with the article. Tech, which continues to fend off a relentless takeover push from Glencore, had to withdraw its original proposal to split up the company into two units, base metals and coal, just hours ahead of a shareholder meeting in April. Tech said at the time it had failed to gather enough support for the spinoff, adding it would work on a new, simpler proposal. So that is pretty much the story we know from before. And this is also interesting. So how much do they own? CIC first invested in tech during the depths of the great financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, paying $1.7 billion for a 17.5% equity stake. So... The company then was probably valued at probably $8 billion then, maybe a little under, seven and a half, and they got a 17.5% equity stake for only $1.7 billion. Over the years, the fund has sold down part of its interest and is currently holding 10.3% of Tech's Class B shares. So pretty interesting update from Cecilia there on northernminer.com, turning to Bloomberg News via Mining.com, China's EV battery sector is preparing a new breakthrough. So development in battery technology, one of China's top battery makers reckons it has cracked a technology to provide even cheaper and more powerful packs for electric vehicles. Goshen High Tech Company recently unveiled a lithium iron manganese phosphate battery LMFP for short, which it says will power an EV for a thousand kilometers on each charge. Until now, it's largely the more expensive nickel cobalt batteries that have provided that kind of range. And we have a quote from Ching Chan, executive president of Goshen's International Business Unit, who said in a phone interview from Tokyo, quote, it's an upgrade, it's a leap for energy density. Goshen's offering adds manganese to existing lithium iron phosphate chemistry that was commercialized in China and has been adopted by major EV makers from BYD to Tesla as a method of cutting the cost of some models. Improvements in LFP that pack more power into smaller packages have helped popularize the technology, which is typically cheaper to manufacture. The innovation highlights how battery technology and raw materials needs are still evolving and unpredictable as the world's automakers seek to slash costs while boosting EV performance. It also shows how Chinese companies continue to pioneer those advances. Finally, Goshen, listed in Shenzhen and with Volkswagen AG as its largest shareholder, expects its LMFP battery to cost 5% less than a conventional LFP battery 
In terms of dollars per kilowatt hour, Chang said, that would be as much as a 20 to 25% cheaper than nickel cobalt units. Finally, the LMFP chemistry can replace some of the industry's nickel cobalt cells, quote, with the same performance but lower costs and better safety, Chang said. I think it's very attractive for car makers, and I have to say a lot of companies will follow this trend. Very interesting. So developments out of China on batteries. Another car story here, GM POSCO Future M to boost investment at Canada Battery Materials Plant. This is Reuters. Via mining.com, General Motors and South Korea's POSCO Future said they will invest more to expand the production capacity at their chemical battery materials facility in Canada, taking their estimated total investment in the plant to over $1 billion. The company said on Friday the new investment in the Ultium Cam plant, expected to start operating in 2025, will be used to set up additional facilities for local on-site processing of critical minerals used in electric vehicle batteries. The companies had invested about $327 million in the plant last year, according to media reports. The latest investment in capacity is expected to support GM's target to build 1 million EVs in North America by 2025, as major automakers push to make them more accessible to consumers and eventually establish cost parity with internal combustion engines. So if they're going to have to remake the grid here, more and more I am seeing electric vehicle you know, charge stations, but it's still not anywhere near what I think we would need, considering how fast this all could be happening here. Continuing on, there is a story, just going to highlight a couple of things here. It's Bloomberg News via mining.com. When will Africa get its first gigantic battery factory? An excellent question. Africa doesn't have a supersized battery factory of its own, at least not yet. China, by far the world leader in battery production, has at least 180 large battery factories. 180? Emerging economies such as Mexico and Thailand have some big battery plants as well. So far, however, there are none of significant size in Africa or South America, even though developing countries on both continents are important sources of the metals that are essential for producing electric vehicle batteries. This could change following an agreement announced last week between Chinese battery manufacturer Goshen High Tech and the Kingdom of Morocco. The Memorandum of Understanding envisions the first factory for EV batteries in Africa with an annual capacity of 100 gigawatts backed by an investment of $6.4 billion. Goshen is one of the world's 10 largest battery manufacturers and is listed on both China's Shenzhen Stock Exchange and on the Zurich Stock Exchange in Switzerland. So that is a fascinating story. Go check it out on northernminer.com. Continuing on, very important story here. Namibia says it will not grab stake in existing resource firms. So backing off... Any idea of resource nationalism? This is Reuters via mining.com. Namibia is not considering taking minority stakes in mining and petroleum producers already operating in the country, the Ministry of Mines and Energy said on Thursday, clarifying earlier comments by the mining minister. Minister of Mines and Energy Tom Elwindo was quoted as telling lawmakers on Monday that Namibia would target stakes in resource companies to reap more value from its mineral wealth. And we have a quote from the ministry who said in a statement, quote, The government has no intention of seizing any stake from existing mineral or petroleum license holders and remains committed to uphold the sanctity of contracts, end quote. The ministry, however, did not rule out the government taking minority stakes when granting licenses to resource firms in the future. 
And we have another quote. The state as the supreme owner of these natural resources may demand certain minimum stake through public enterprises in any mineral or petroleum licenses that may be issued in the future. And of course, Namibia is one of the biggest uranium producers in the world. It is also a major diamond producer and has significant hard rock lithium deposits. And just wrapping up here, labor costs will soon beat oil as mine's biggest expense, new data indicates. So Colin McClellan, using cost mine intelligence, is providing some real alpha here. Labor costs are replacing oil products as mine's most expensive item as inflation impacts operating expenses more than capital costs, new reports show. Wages for some copper and gold mine employees in the southwest United States increased by around 10%. In the last year and a half, helping raise hourly pay by 4% at unionized and non-union surface and underground metal and industrial mineral mines across the U.S., according to Cost Mine Intelligence, a unit of the Northern Miner Group. The trend is part of 30% higher labor costs since the 2015 commodity bear market, Cost Mine Vice President Mike Sinden said in a recent interview. And we have a quote from Sinden, quote, as non-unionized labor gains bargaining power and union contracts roll off, We expect to see double-digit labor costs that could really add fuel to the fire if energy prices stay strong, end quote. So you can read the whole story on northernminer.com. And finally, just a couple more here. YMP Scholarship Fund offers 45 awards this year. Applications for the 2023 Young Mining Professional Scholarship Fund are now open for students in mining-related programs at Canadian post-secondary institutions. Just go to northernminer.com. This story is by Norm Talinsky. And finally, a headline here, Bloomberg News via mining.com. PIMCO says gold is overvalued now, but it has long-term appeal. And in the story, they're saying that gold is modestly overvalued and that it could take a bit of a breather here before resuming an uptrend. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. prices. Let's just take a quick look at the U.S. 10-year bond. And while we're at it, let's look at the U.K. because we were discussing this last week how bond yields had broken out of the trading range that we had identified here just on our weekly, you know, manual basis here. It seemed like they had broken out on the upside. So last week, the U.S. 10-year bond was at 3.72%. Now it's at 3.67%. So it is down 0.05%. So not really down that much, a little bit lower. And turning to the UK, I think it was at 4.31% last week. Now it's at 4.231%. So it's basically 0.08% lower. I mean, it's still at 4.23%. Looks like it's just consolidating before moving higher. So Bond yields continue to be interesting. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $1,978.50 per ounce. That is $3 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $23.47 per ounce. That is $0.31 higher than last week. So silver outperforming gold. Interestingly, platinum is also higher at $1,030.94 per ounce. That is $6 higher than last week. 
and palladium is lower at $1,414.14 per ounce. That is $6 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading $0.11 higher at $3.77 per pound. Iron ore is trading $2 higher at $107.38 per metric ton. Aluminum is unchanged at $1.02 per pound. Lead is a penny lower at $0.93 per pound. Nickel is $0.03 higher at $9.57 per pound. Tin is also higher at $11.63 per pound. That is $0.37 higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.39 per pound. Lithium is lower at $41.80 per pound, so that is only $0.24 lower than last week. Whereas uranium is a dollar higher at $54.60 per pound. So uranium continuing to show very slow strength here. And zinc is down two cents at $1.04 per pound. So a bit of a mixed bag out there, whether it's the precious metals or the industrial metals. Standouts might include silver and platinum, which are showing some relative strength in the precious metals. And copper, tin, and uranium are also showing some relative strength in the industrial metals. But overall, more of a choppy market than anything too dramatic either way. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Randy Smallwood, president and CEO of Wheaton Precious Metals, as well as the chair of the World Gold Council. It is the first time I have interviewed him on the Northern Miner podcast, so I'm thrilled to have him here. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome Randy Smallwood, President and CEO of Wheaton Precious Metals and Chair of the World Gold Council to the Northern Miner Podcast. Randy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Looking forward to it. Well, me as well. I mean, you're one of these figures that, you know, I started listening to precious metal type interviews way back. I'd say I started in 2009 and you're one of those figures who have been around for a little while and have that you're a recognizable name. So I'm thrilled to talk to you. So tell us, I mean, you've been with Wheaton Precious Metals. You are the president and CEO and it is known as a streamer. I assume Wheaton Precious Metals is still a streamer. How is the streaming business going? Uh, it's a good business. Yeah. So uh, I've been with the company since we founded it back in 2004. Uh, I was part of Gold Corp when we created the original Silver Wheaton. And uh, originally we spent the first 10 years focused on the silver space. But now we're, uh, as the name implies, Wheaton Precious Metals and focused on precious metals. We're really active, actually. Um, the streaming business is a really good business model, especially for investors that are looking for uh, a lower risk uh, way to invest into profitable precious metals mining operations, but not have the same cost exposure that you would in the mining space. And so it's a it's a really strong business model that has taken off. And, and I would say currently in, in the current environment, streaming is one of the most attractive sources of capital for any companies that are looking to grow. And that's one of the reasons we're so busy. So so we're uh, we just announced the new deal uh, just last week, or I guess it was two weeks ago now. And, um, you know, we're very busy, hoping to announce a few more over the next few months. Lots of interest out there in terms of streaming as a source of capital to help companies grow. 
Yeah, I mean, it's one of those models that seems like a bit of a no-brainer, but I was surprised to learn. I was talking to another streamer maybe six months ago, and they were telling me how there was actually a lot of streamers in the business, let's say like, I don't know, three or four years ago, and that model needed some consolidation of some kind. Is that something that rings true for you? Is it a business that's kind of been sometimes better because maybe it was too attractive of an industry at one point? Well, I mean, uh, it's our own success that sort of breeds that desire, right? Uh, the fact that we've had such a good track record in terms of delivering value to our shareholders means other companies are going to try this uh, this business model. And so there's definitely uh, a, a lot of other companies out there. But in reality, when it comes to substantive scale, there's there's three sort of principal companies uh, that have been there all the way along. And then there's a number of sort of mid-tier uh, streamers in the space. You know, I, I think it's a healthy market. You know, one of the things about consolidation in, in our space is that there's not a lot of uh, synergies to be gained. This is a very low overhead business. Our GNA is a very small amount on a relative basis compared to the size of our company. And so when it comes to synergies, it's not as uh, as attractive as it, as you might think in in say operating companies, uh, mining companies, and that's one of the things that that does make uh, consolidation a little bit a little bit more challenging in terms of making sure that you're still being uh, accretive and and delivering value to your shareholders. And so, so it 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 will happen. I think it's one of the laws of nature. Uh, things always go through overpopulations and then consolidation, and then overpopulation and consolidation. And so. There's no doubt there has been uh, some acquisitions, but you know it, there's a lot of demand out there for our capital. And so, as, as I would say, I think there's probably enough to go around for a while here right now in terms of supplying capital to the mining industry, especially in today's markets. And so uh, we're not focused on consolidation in the space, mainly because we think the best value is continuing to add projects like we have been over the last while and delivering that value back to our shareholders. Okay, excellent. So in a sense, you're really beautifully positioned to understand how well the miners are being funded right now. How are things going? I mean, the stocks still seem like they're fairly, you know, if you generalize, if you just say, look at the GDX, they seem like they're still fairly, you know, attractive valuation, shall we say. How are they doing? Are they getting all the money that they want? Or is it tough for them to raise money because of ESG concerns? Uh, where are we with, you know, funding? Well, it's, uh, I mean, you know, obviously the, the challenge that we see right now, commodity prices are pretty good. So if you've got operations, if you've got operating mines, you, you should be generating pretty decent cash flows. You know, copper prices uh, have been hovering around up and down around four bucks. Uh, Gold is decent price, uh, even silver up over, uh, you know, well over 20 bucks. You know, those are all pretty good prices. And so most companies that have existing operations are generating pretty decent internal cash flows. Where we see the real opportunity set in the streaming space is the single asset development companies, the ones that don't have access to operating cash flow. Because uh, for them to grow, they have to source capital from outside. And, and, you know, there's always debt, but even debt is getting more and more expensive every day. And debt can't supply at all. There always needs to be a, a measure of equity capital to help build these projects, help these uh, development companies turn into operating companies. And that equity capital traditionally would come in the form of, of issuing shares. But the challenge is the share price, as you said, is it, it's attractive from an investor's perspective. It's not attractive from the CFO of that development company's perspective, because most of those shares are trading at a substantive discount to their net asset value. And so this is where the streamers, like Wheaton, where we have a, an incredible advantage, because when we invest into these assets, 
the share price is irrelevant to us. We're purchasing the metal. We're buying the metal. And so so because of that, you know, even though these shares are incredibly discounted relative to the net asset value of the uh, portfolio within the company, you know, we're actually buying the metal for its value. And so it's by far and away a much more attractive opportunity in terms of delivering capital than issuing shares and in the process of doing that, uh, excessively diluting your existing shareholder base. And so that's what's keeping us busy is it's the companies that don't have access to internal operating cash flows to, to cover the equity piece of whatever their investment is to grow. Instead of issuing shares into the space, they're now looking at streams to supply that equity capital. And as I said, you know, we're seeing it's a, it's a long list of companies that are, that are uh, going down that path. And so we're busier than we've ever been in terms of numbers of opportunities. The scale and size, you know, we, uh, what we've seen is that you know, most of the projects, we're not seeing multi-billion dollar builds being undertaken in today's world. With the inflationary pressures that we're seeing around the world have sort of really made a lot of the smaller companies and the mid-tier companies sort of hesitate before they commit to multi-billion dollar builds. But we are seeing mines going forward that are in the billion dollar range, one or, you know, between, you know, 500 million to 1.5 billion dollar range. And, and those are the projects where you know, tucking in a $300 million stream like we've just done with Lumina at the Congrejo project down in Ecuador, you know, really dramatically improves that project and has now sourced their capital as they continue to advance that project forward. It's a, uh, you know, and, and so I think it's a great example of what we're offering out there. And every time we announce one of these deals, a few more companies knock on the door saying they want a piece of that pie too. So uh, <laughs> we're busy. Very interesting. And just briefly then, do you think that the higher interest rates and debt being more expensive, as you were saying, do you think that directly leads to better opportunities for yourself? It definitely helps. But why streams are so attractive right now is, is more because share prices are, are trading at such, dis, you know, such great discounts to the net asset value. Whereas a stream we buy, we are investing into that metal at the asset value, much closer to the, to, you know, one times net asset value than, than what the shares are trading at. So it's that arbitrage between how shares are trading versus what the asset is actually worth that uh, makes a stream so attractive. We invest based on the metal content. We don't invest based on your share price. Okay, excellent. And do you have like a brief, like laundry list of things you look for in a company? Is, is there something like a template or is it really a case-by-case -case basis? You look at the story and you analyze it. Well, look, for Wheaton, we've had great success in focusing on assets where we think the operating margins will fall in the bottom half of the respective cost curve. So that's to say that if we're going to get gold from a copper mine, where does that copper mine fit on the copper cost curve? And we're only interested in assets in the bottom half, the you know first quartile and the second quartile. And that's one of the first tests that we have whenever we're looking at a, a potential investment is where is this project going to fall? And we've had great success. Our current portfolio has got uh, well over 90. I think we're at 93 percent bottom half of the uh, of the cost curve on a, on a cumulative basis. And, and you have over 20 mines delivering metal to us. Uh, I would argue our current portfolio is probably the highest quality portfolio in the precious metal space when you're judging it by operating margins. So it's a good, strong, you know, it's a very important aspect. Uh, you mentioned a bit earlier on about the ESG side. I mean, obviously, very, very important for us. We pride ourselves as being the leaders in the streaming and royalty space. We were the first ones to start investing back into communities. Even though we don't operate these mines, we co-invest with our partners to uh, strengthen their own social license in terms of what they're contributing back to good sustainable benefits back to, to uh, all the other stakeholders. And so 
So we're leaders in that space and we tend to stay leaders in that space. And it is something that's very important to us. And so we have a good part of our due diligence is focused on meeting with community members and other stakeholders to try and understand, uh, you know, first off, that the project is is supported and that there is good sustainable benefits going to be delivered. But secondly, to find out how we can help in terms of uh, uh, helping our partners be stronger. We have an overlying mantra in our company that the stronger our partners are, the stronger we are. And so, you know, we owe it to our partners to try and work with them and help them be successful in any way we can. And there's a number of different ways that we do that. And I think that's one of the key uh, aspects of, you know, why we've had such a successful, uh, why we built such a successful portfolio. Well, it truly is sustainable if everybody is winning when you're mining for precious metals or any other kind of metals. And I wanted to go there next. A company changed its name from Silver Wheaton to Wheaton Precious Metals. I So are you simply precious metals now? Because it seems like maybe you need to change the name again to just Wheaton Metals or something, or will you stick simply to precious metals? No, our focus is precious metals. You know, the only non-precious metals investment we have is a bit of cobalt from the Voises Bay Mine, uh, Valais Voises Bay Mine up in uh, Newfoundland here in Canada. And outside of that, and it's about 2 to 3% of our revenue. Everything else is either gold, dominated by gold, about 55% of our revenue comes from gold, about uh, 40% comes from silver, and then the rest is uh, palladium and a little bit of cobalt. And so... So, you know, our focus is precious metals. We're we're not into oil and gas. We're not into iron ore. We're not, you know, the base metals side of it. We uh, we invest into base metal mines by purchasing the the non-core precious metals byproduct from those base metal mines. And so, the bulk of our production actually comes from copper mines. And and so, you know, we we do have to understand the base metals industry because we're investing into it. But we're only there to try and acquire the non-core byproduct precious metals. And briefly, why are you not attracted to copper then? Why does it not work? It's what we promise to our shareholders. We call ourselves a precious metals company and our shareholders invested into us because we're a precious metals company. We're not interested in adding oil production. We're not interested in adding iron ore production. There's plenty of ways for our shareholders individually to chase that if that's what they desire. So my commitment to my shareholders is to deliver profitable precious metals production, period. No oil and gas no iron ore, no base metals exposure. And so it's it's what our mandate is. Well, there's something to be said for having a niche and being able to deliver on that niche. So turning over to the World Gold Council, if we can put that hat on as the chair of the World Gold Council, I mean, very briefly, for those that might not know, and just to refresh our memories, what is the World Gold Council? What is the mandate there? The World Gold Council has been around for, uh, it's, I think we're actually we're pretty close to 50 years of uh, of history now, and it's it's really a, 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 an advocacy group, uh, an education group, and an information group that is um, its membership is made up of the leading gold producers of the world, around the world, and in fact, you know, our membership makes up about 70 percent of worldwide gold production, which is a pretty amazing stat when you consider that that, you know, we are very selective in terms of uh, jurisdictions and such. Um, and so it's it's got very, very good representation, but it is the gold producers and the streamers that, you know, make up the membership of this. And it's an advocacy group for, you know, for, for gold in terms of supplying information. We've got lots of uh, data that we supply, uh, educational programs. We, you know, one of the more popular programs right now is the central bank reserve management uh, programs that we have because we've got <laughs> record buying by central banks in terms of investing into gold and, and swapping 
Well, we're seeing a lot of swapping U.S. dollars out for gold uh, at at you know record levels all around uh, all around the world, and so so you know we've we've got a lot of different uh, programs along that that way, and it, it really does uh, focus on being an advocacy group for gold, and it's uh, it's exciting times. I've been the chair now for uh, just over just over two years, actually two and a half years now, and we've kickstarted an initiative there called Gold Two Four Seven. And Gold 247 is really focused on taking gold ownership into the 21st century. To be honest, gold ownership hasn't really changed for a very long time in terms of how you own it, how it's traded, how it's uh, how it's moved around, and uh, and that doesn't reflect the you know the current capacity that we as a society have right now in terms of digitalizing ownership and blockchain-based systems that can uh, track uh, uh, you know um, track provenance uh, behind uh, behind gold and stuff like that. So so this gold 247 initiative is is pretty exciting because we started off with a um, a provenance based system where a, a large number of our producers and a large number of refineries around the world are now entering gold into this peer to peer ledger, the shared ledger system, a blockchain system that will track where the gold came from, what kind of um, benefits have been delivered from that gold wherever it was mined. What kind of uh, costs? You know, it, it's something that society wants more and more of is to understand the benefits and the costs associated with producing its materials. And so, so we're moving gold into this system. We've got this gold bar. We call it the gold bar integrity system (GBI) that is rapidly expanding. We've had a number of refineries. Uh, in fact, even the Canadian Mint here is just uh, a Royal Canadian Mint is now just uh, uh, signed on board and and moving this forward. But that's uh, that's really a, a big an infrastructure piece for for where we're really trying to go with Gold 247. And the reason we call it Gold 247 is the 24 stands for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 247. And what we're trying to do is improve the accessibility of gold. And ultimately, where we'd like to get to is a gold token, a digital token that is backed solidly by gold stored in an accredited vault system. And it allows that gold to be owned and 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 moved around quickly, instantly, you know, and and ultimately winds up uh, becoming. Uh, it could form the foundation of a new gold-backed currency that ultimately you know steps in into uh, into society and and provides some confidence, of which we don't really have a lot in most of the other currencies, the fiat currencies that we have around the world. And so so we're we're building the framework, the foundation. We're working with the bullion trading banks, with the regulators, with with the uh, different vaulting and 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 refinery associations to come up with a uh, a a digitalized version of gold that will allow us to move gold around quickly, easily, with a high level of trust, with uh, you know full fungibility, with a, a clear provenance behind it, and uh, and ultimately it turns into a a a. a a digital version of gold, and uh, we think there will be a, a high. In fact, you know, I think every day there there's going to be a higher demand for something like this. When you look at what's going on around the world, well, I think you zero in on a profound issue. I'd say with owning gold, which is the difficulty, the expensiveness, let's say, of buying physical gold, particularly for the guy on the street. You know, a lot of people have their Binance account or their Coinbase account, but they don't have a stock account, right? Mm -hmm. So I think you're, I think you're onto something in terms of a consumer friendly token that uh, would represent gold, if I understand you right. 
uh, I know we're onto something. <laughs> this this would be, uh, you know, a digital token that actually has substance behind it, guaranteed by the likes of the World Gold Council and a lot of other uh, agencies, the uh, LBMA and et cetera, that we're working with to advance this forward. And so there's no doubt there's going to be demand for this. It's a matter of uh, of getting the infrastructure built. And and I think that, you know, it, it, it could ultimately get to the point where it is as easy as, you know, I know that whenever I use my uh, credit card to purchase something internationally, I get a choice of currencies that I can pay. Well, one of the options should be, can I just pay in gold? It literally, there's the technology is all there. It's just a matter of building the infrastructure and getting it in place. And so the World Gold Council is uh, very heavily focused on delivering this to uh, to society. And we think it'll revolutionize the way you can own gold. Well, it's an exciting proposition. And again, I think, especially for people under 40, let's say, I think there'd be a lot of excitement for that kind of product where people who might not just buy gold otherwise, as you're pointing out. So just as we're wrapping up here in the final minutes, you mentioned central bank gold buying. So from your perch there at the World Gold Council, what are you seeing? Like, can you dig a little deeper? I mean, sometimes people talk about this flow of gold from west to east. You know, are certain countries in particular buying it? Some people think China has a lot more than they're claiming. Can you just speak a little bit about what you're seeing in the gold market? Well, look, I mean, here's here's what's happened is what we saw last year was um, was the U.S. dollar was weaponized. You know, when the United States restricted Russia's access to the Swiss system, all of a sudden the U.S. dollar isn't as apolitical, as non-political as what most people, as, as what everyone believed. And and because of that, central banks, the, the bankers that run these central banks, their responsibility is to build a solid reserve for those sovereign nations, a solid, confident reserve that will withstand anything and everything that comes towards that sovereign nation in terms of providing that confidence. And all of a sudden now they're looking at the U.S. dollars and, and trust me, there's a lot of U.S. dollars in those central bank reserves around the world. All of a sudden those come with a higher measure of risk than what they had before. And, and those bankers are now exploring and, and what we're seeing is, is increased buying around the world, replacing the U.S. dollar in those central bank reserves with gold. Singapore just greatly, last month, just greatly expanded their own holdings. Iraq uh, has been uh, buying. Turkey has been buying. China has been, of course, building up. Nobody really knows, uh, you know, I mean, we, we can't say with total confidence with respect to China, but we're just seeing it around the world that interest levels of of making sure that gold is part of those foundations that you you build the country around is in growing demand. And uh, I just... You know, when, when you sit and think about the fact that the other concern or the other issue that we're seeing is is the concern about the U.S. dollar being, you know, considered the reserve currency. And now people are trying to explore options as to is there is there another way to, to or another reserve currency that we can uh, have out there? Well, I mean, if we're successful with well, and we will be successful, but when gold 247 gets uh, delivers that gold token, I would argue that that will represent uh, a much higher confidence reserve currency. And in terms of making it liquid and acceptable around the world, that's an easy, you know, that's that's an easy objective. And so so I'm just uh, very excited about that. But we are seeing record purchases by central banks uh, pushing down this. And it's really because people are concerned about the U.S. dollar. Now, the one aspect about the U.S., is that the Federal Reserve down there, of course, has by far and away the biggest gold reserves backing that U.S. dollar of any country in the world. So, you know, what do you think China, which is clearly competing with the United States, 
What do you think they feel they need to try and make their own currency stand beside the U.S.? They're going to require uh, increased gold holdings to give confidence behind those that wish to trade in the renminbi versus the U.S. dollar. And so that's an objective of a lot of different countries and, and groups and organizations around the world. And uh, all of that just bodes very well for gold. Excellent. And just as a closing question here, you mentioned the World Gold Council is an advocacy group of sorts for the miners. What is your take on the miners? How are they doing? What is the health of precious metals miners, the gold miners from your perspective? Are things ready to really take off here? Are there challenges? What do you see? Well, you know, the gold and silver prices, precious metal prices are actually pretty decent. We've got gold chasing around, or you know, bouncing around $2,000 an ounce. We've got silver up in the $23, $24 an ounce range. These are good times for, if you've got a good uh, operating precious metals mine, you're actually generating some pretty decent cash flows at this space. Unfortunately, you know, um, we're just not seeing the same level of investor interest in it. Uh, and, and, you know, and the mining industry has always had a, a challenge. It's not an easy industry. It's getting tougher and tougher to build mines while it's getting tougher and tougher to find them and then to develop them and get them built and up and running. And, you know, the industry itself has dramatically improved in terms of its own performance. Technology itself has, has, uh, has really helped on that front. Most of the environmental issues that we see come from operations that existed, you know, a hundred years ago, and uh, and there, you know, some legacies behind that that do have to be cleaned up, and the industry has to, you know, continue improving in that front. But I do think that we've done a, a great job on that front. The gold industry delivers incredible value to rural locations. Uh, you know, in fact, the mining industry, the extractive uh, hard metals mining industry incredible value some of the highest paying jobs and careers and and just elevated standard of living in these rural locations and uh, we just have to continue to try and improve what we deliver to all the stakeholders and i think the industry set itself up very well for that good so things are in great shape and getting better all the time randy smallwood president and ceo of wheaton precious metals and chair of the world gold council thank you for joining us on the northern miner podcast adrian it was a pleasure thank you and thank you once again to randy smallwood President and CEO of Wheaton Precious Metals and Chair of the World Gold Council for joining us here on the Northern Miner Podcast for a fascinating discussion on what is happening in the gold market and with the streamers. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us once again on the program. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.